Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, the book of Revelation, chapter 17. We began Revelation 17, um, and the primary feature that I wanted to show you was how this woman riding on the beast, the beast that had the seven heads and, and ten horns, was essentially the antithesis, in other words, the opposite of the woman of Revelation chapter 12 who was clothed in the sun and had 12 stars as a crown and was pregnant with our Messiah. In chapter 17, the woman is essentially sponsored by Satan and the beast. And in chapter 12, the woman is sponsored by God. So it is a battle of evil against good, the character and nature of the righteous woman versus the character and nature of the evil woman. And indeed, in chapter 12, there was a battle of evil against good that took place in heaven and good won out. And the result was that Satan was expelled from heaven so now he turned all of his attention to planet Earth. Earth was Satan's last chance at having a kingdom for himself. So here in chapter 17 then, Satan mocks and he mimics God by bringing forth this evil woman riding on the beast with seven heads, one of those heads, is the Antichrist. And her job is to turn the nations of the world against God and against God's people as a prelude to an all-out war for planet Earth. This will be Satan's last stand. It'll be the war to end all wars, which in the Western world we call it Armageddon. Now, Revelation 16, uh, 17 rather, is not a particularly long chapter, but it is utterly packed with tantalizing information about which countless books and articles have been written and dozens of opinions have been given. Now, since when we only got through the first few verses last time, let's read it all from the beginning. So open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 17 and follow along with me. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 1548. 1548. Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls, and he said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great whore who is sitting by many waters. The kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth have become drunk from the wine of her whoring. He carried me off in the spirit to a desert, 
I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones, pearls. And in her hand was a gold cup filled with the obscene and filthy things produced by her whoring. On her forehead was written a name with a hidden meaning. Babel the Great, mother of whores and of the earth's obscenities. And I saw the woman drunk from the blood of God's people, that is, from the blood of the people who testify about Yeshua. And on seeing her, I was altogether astounded. And the angel said to me, Why are you astounded? I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that was carrying her. The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up from the abyss. But it is on its way to destruction, and the people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world will be astounded to see the beast that once was, now is not, but is to appear. Now this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting, but also they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is living now, the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The beast, which once was and now is not, is an eighth king. It will come from the seven, and it's on its way to destruction. Now the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to rule, but they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. They have one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are called, chosen, and faithful will overcome along with him. Then he said to me, The waters that you saw where the whore is sitting are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. Now as for the ten horns that you saw and the beast, they will hate the whore. They'll bring her to ruin, leave her naked, eat her flesh, and consume her with fire. For God put it in their hearts to do what will fulfill his purpose, that is, to be of one mind, to give their kingdom to the beast until God's words have accomplished their intent. And the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, as with a number of prophets before him, John was sent into an ecstatic state by the Spirit and he was carried away into a spiritual wilderness for a vision about this woman and the beast. Now John was not physically moved, rather it was his spirit that was transported. Why into a visionary wilderness? Because as a living person John could not enter heaven to receive God's instructions. And the temple was destroyed at this time. So meeting there was not possible. John wasn't a priest anyway. 
And so the wilderness was a traditional place where God would meet with his prophets. And since this is the spiritual sphere that John is operating in for the moment, then for us to understand what's happening, we must take it in figurative terms. And the figurative term, this, the, the mental picture that we are given to best understand this spiritual meeting place is the wilderness. A place where learning and preparation and protection by God occurs. Well, there John sees this spectacular woman sitting on a beast. And the beast being filled with blasphemous names. Well, what does it mean that the beast was filled with blasphemous names? What does that mean? No doubt we are to take the term names within the Hebrew context, which, which means that the idea is about a person's character and, 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 and his or her attributes. So as concerns God, claimed attributes and characteristics, characteristics uh, of the beast are blasphemous. For what reason? What makes it blasphemous? In English language and culture, to blaspheme means to hurl an, an insult for the purpose of causing an offense. So in English, in the English sense of the word to blaspheme God or to blaspheme Christ is to essentially insult him. Now, that is the sense it is meant in Islam. When the Prophet or Allah is said to have been blasphemed, that is, it is a matter of doing or saying something that the religious authorities believe is offensive and shameful. That's blaspheming in Islam. But that's not the biblical sense of it. In the Bible, the idea of blasphemy as indicating some sort of offense or insult against God's or man's religious sensibilities is not there. Rather, especially as it concerns God, Blasphemy is closer in meaning to cursing God or to condemning God, even denouncing God or renouncing Him. That's what it means biblically. It is not cursing in the sense of saying bad words to Him, but rather in the Hebrew sense, it means to wish something evil to befall someone. In ancient times, to issue a curse in God's name was thought to have power. When you blaspheme God, you are questioning or making light of his immense and unapproachable authority and holiness. One very familiar example of blaspheming God is committing idolatry. Why? Because on its face, idolatry, idolatry says that we place a higher value upon or a higher honor to 
give a higher honor to a God or a person or an object than we give to the God of Israel. We assign to that God or that person or that object the characteristics and attributes that rightly belong only to the Lord. Atheism is idolatry and therefore blasphemy because it takes away the worship that is rightly due to God and it gives it to humans. Well, so the seven-headed beast with the blasphemous names, the Antichrist plus those leaders that prop up his position of authority, they seek to be worshipped and to be honored in place of God's Son, Messiah Yeshua. He demands that the high place that God alone holds belongs instead to him. And indeed, during the time that the Antichrist reigns, when a human being takes on the mark of the beast, 666, that person is tattooing him or herself to provide visible proof of their allegiance and honor to Satan instead of to God. This is blasphemy. Well, the vision of the woman being seated upon the beast denotes an alliance, a common purpose, a common mindset, including a certain interdependence among them. The seven heads and the woman act as a team. But as we're going to see later, it doesn't all remain that way. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. Now, purple is traditionally the color of royalty, but scarlet is emblematic of what is worn by harlots. We could spend an awful lot of time on the significance of color in ancient times, but suffice it to say that while we moderns might find purple and scarlet worn together as being a rather bold and brassy display, maybe even fun, any Jew in John's time would instantly have zeroed in on the unmistakable symbolic meaning of it. Those two colors being adorned by the same woman would be at best ironic. But more likely, since we are dealing with a Jewish cultural backdrop, Jewish believers would have seen this as an example of an important biblical principle called shanetz. Shanetz. Now, shanetz means illicit mixture. In the Old Testament, there is a law, for instance, that says that wool and linen must not be warm, uh, woven together to form a cloth other than for some very specific exceptions. The same law principle also speaks of not sowing two seeds of two different kinds next to one another in a field. These both fall within the principle of Shanez. So this woman, seated on the beast, wearing purple and scarlet, is wearing a blatantly rebellious, illicit mixture that says, while she may consider herself to be royalty, the purple, 
she is equally an unclean prostitute. The scarlet. Yet the symbolism of what she's wearing goes on further. She is said to have adorned herself with gold and with precious stones. Now I think because the entire theme of the woman and the beast is to mimic and to mock God, then the gold and the precious stones is a kind of perverse display of the breastplate that the high priest wore. See, the high priest wore precious stones symbolizing God's chosen people, the twelve tribes of Israel. The harlot riding the beast wears her breastplate of precious stones symbolizing the vulgarity and the decadence of Satan's chosen people, the Gentile nations of the world. Now notice next that she holds a golden cup. This is mocking God's use of golden bowls given to his angels to pour out his wrath in judgment. So what is her gold vessel filled with? Obscene and filthy things that have been produced by her whoring. Young's literal translation, really good one to have handy sometimes by the way, uses the terms abominations and uncleanness to describe what is in her cup. And that's a far better interpretation as the Greek words are bedlugma, that indeed means abomination, and akathartes, which means ritual impurity. And when we look to the Holy Scriptures, we find that God labels the worst of the worst sins as abominations. And ritual impurity is the natural result of sin. Point being, the two go together. And in keeping with the concept of sacred activity and Satan then mocking it, we next read in verse 5 that like the high priest, the harlot wore a band on her forehead with a name written on it. Babel the Great, mother of whores and the earth's obscenities. The high priest wore a band on his head with a secret name on it, the name of God, Jehovah. Now some commentators want to equate the woman wearing the headband to the requirement of the beast for all humans to wear the number 666 on their foreheads or on their hands. Now while that is certainly some low-hanging fruit, I see this as out of context for the scene that's being depicted here. Rather, what is written on the forehead of the harlot is a mocking parody of the divine name that is written on the forehead of the Israelite high priest. In each case, what is written describes whom uh, whom the person wearing the name on his or her forehead identifies with. Who do they identify with? The woman identifies with Babylon the Great and Satan. The high priest identifies with the God of Israel. 
Now the final feature of John's description of the harlot is, it says she's drunk from the blood of God's people. And then it further identifies these people as who? Followers of Yeshua. So let's make no mistake, this, since this woman is symbolic of the wicked world system that opposes God, then we can reasonably surmise that this same system will not tolerate those who refuse to join them. The world's system of the end times will, like the government system of Orwell's novel 1984, demand absolute conformity. No exceptions. The world system wants to eradicate not so much a belief in a God, but rather only those who follow the true God. After all, belief in a God would not serve the Antichrist or the false prophet very well as they want themselves to be seen as divine. Now, pause and think about this for a moment. Is there a system alive in the world today that believes in a God that also seeks world domination, that is violent and uncompromising, and hates Jews and Christians and wants them exterminated at all cost. Of course there is. It's called Islam. Could the world system of the Antichrist use the Muslims' homicidal hatred of Jews and Christians to his advantage? certainly seems feasible. And I think the biblical, biblical description of the nations, the particular nations, that try to annihilate Israel along with the circumstances of the end times that involves never-ending wars centered on the existence of Israel that today are entirely under the influence and cause of Islam makes that false religion a prime suspect as the leader in the persecution of Christians and Jews as history comes to a close. Now John is said to have greatly wondered about this woman. Now the Greek word translated as wondered or astounded is uh, thalma, thalma. And it does not mean puzzling, doesn't mean confusing or even worried. It's, it, it's actually a term that is normally used in a positive sense, even indicating a kind of admiration. I think the best word to describe it would be to say something wonderful. I think it's safe to say that John was impressed with what he saw, as opposed to disgusted. He was as bedazzled by the amazing splendor of this woman riding upon the beast as Josephus said that Gentiles were when coming to Jerusalem just to visit the city they were bedazzled 
when from a distance they first saw Herod's breathtaking temple rise up into the clouds looking like a snow-capped mountain. So when most of our Bibles read that the angel asks John why he's so astounded or amazed and then goes on to explain who this woman is to John, it's not because John is confused or frightened and so the angel wants to unconfuse him. Rather, the real substance of the angel's question is more like, Hey John, what is it about this woman that impresses you so much that you're just absolutely enchanted? Maybe you're even delighted in a kind of childlike awe of her beauty and magnificence. Well, don't be, John, because she's not what you think. Rather, says the angel, I'm going to tell you the hidden meaning of this woman. This magnificent woman that sits upon the beast that has seven heads and ten horns. John is told that the beast she's consorting with has come up out of the abyss. But it's on its way to being destroyed. In other words, that beast and its rider are of satanic origin and power and are soon enough going to get snuffed out by God. What the angel actually tells John has brought on all sorts of speculations from the theological world and indeed it is one mind-bending mystery that I'm sure we'd all like to know the answer to. The angel says, The beast you saw once was, now is not, and it will come up out of the abyss. Now, don't let this simple description fly right by you. What is Messiah and God called in the Bible? A description that's, that's sometimes used in Christian songs. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. And now, what is the beast that arises from the abyss described as? The one who was, now is not, and will come. So while the true Messiah will descend from heaven onto earth to assume his throne, the Antichrist will ascend from the abyss, the place of imprisoned demons, onto earth to confront Yeshua in the war to claim the planet once and for all. Now notice how in verse 8, that just as John was awestruck and overwhelmed by the splendor of this harlot, so now all the people living on earth whose names are not written in the book of life, non-believers, those who are lost forever, they are awestruck and overwhelmed by the splendor of this beast. I want to pause to remind you, the beast with seven heads and ten horns, or just the beast for short, is not just one person or one thing. Those seven heads are seven different people. And in Revelation 13, one of the seven was said to have overcome a fatal head wound. 
This is the one that will go on to be the Antichrist. Now, if the Apostle John sees the most incredible, beautiful, incomparable sight he has ever witnessed in this harlot, and he had to be brought back to reality by that angel, how much more will non-believers be pleasantly flabbergasted and impressed and welcoming at the sight of the beast? And when, while John had an angel tell him just who this woman was in reality, the earth dwellers in those days are not going to have any such advantage. They will be thoroughly taken in with every level of human leadership and authority agreeing that this beast is the most wonderful, needed thing ever to appear before humankind. The beast's ability, charisma, intelligence, likability, leadership have never been matched. And people will gladly do the will of the beast, absolutely believing that if he thinks something, it's best. Then it cannot be challenged. Now more information is given. With the caveat in verse 9 that wisdom is going to be needed to understand what comes next. Now we must always remember that wisdom by definition is from God. Knowledge can be acquired by anyone of reasonable intelligence. But only they who have the Lord can have wisdom. So now here is the riddle of the ages. The beast and its description are, of course, symbolic. It's not going to be some monster-looking thing like Godzilla up here. Okay. The angel says that the seven heads are symbolic of seven mountains upon which the woman, the harlot of Babylon, is said to be established. Further that the seven heads are also seven kings. Five of them have fallen. One is in existence in John's era, apparently. And the seventh is yet to come. In other words, he's yet to appear. But when that seventh king does appear, he'll only be in power a short time. Now to add to this mystery, there's going to be an eighth. And it says he belongs to the seventh. And he will go on to perdition. Now let's clear up one thing right away. The Greek word that in some English Bibles, including, by the way, the influential King James Version, that is translated to perdition is apoleia. Apoleia. And it means utter destruction. If we take the word perdition to merely indicate complete destruction, that's correct. But often as not, <laughs> perdition is seen as kind of a midway stopover between heaven and earth for departed souls. Or it is but another word for hell. The word apoleia is a description. It's not a place. So this verse confirms that this eighth king or kingdom 
will finally and utterly be destroyed. Then the passage turns its attention to the symbolism of the ten horns. But we have enough to chew on for the moment with the seven heads and the kings. The appearance of the phrase seven mountains or seven hills, especially in John's day, makes it awfully tempting to say that these seven heads of the beast represent Rome. Or perhaps the Roman Empire with Rome as its capital. Rome has for time immemorial been known as the city built on seven hills. Thus to say that the woman is established upon the seven mountains or hills means that the institution of Babylon the Great is based in Rome. And it is believed within many Christian circles that this can only mean one thing. That the Catholic Church located in Rome with its Pope as a king is the harlot, Babylon the Great. Now since the word mountains or hills is regularly used in the Old Testament uh, prophecies to symbolize governments, then another line of thought is that the seven mountains represent seven Roman kings, seven Roman emperors. And there is always a debate about which seven these just might be. Some theologians who think this is the solution begin with Julius Caesar as the first one. Others as Augustus, some even with Galba. One of the more accepted listings of the seven kings of Rome that must begin with the first five being fallen before John's time are Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, and Nero. Therefore, the sixth king, the one verse 10 says, who is, in other words, in John's day, must be Vespasian, who ruled from 69 to 79 AD. Now, pausing for a moment, that means that Vespasian was in power when the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in AD 70. But it also means that the latest date that John could have written Revelation is early 79 AD. Or, for John, Vespasian couldn't have been the one who is. Now, since few any longer believe that John wrote Revelation that early, I personally think it was around 90 AD, then of course Vespasian as the sixth king of Rome doesn't work. But if Vespasian were the sixth king, then Titus would be the seventh one. That's the one who was yet to come. And Titus ruled Rome from 79 to 81, barely two years. So that satisfies verse 10 that says he must remain only a little while. Complicated, isn't it? Now other scholars calculate the first of seven Roman kings as Nero and the seventh as Domitian, mostly because of the assertion that John wrote in the early 90s AD and Domitian was the emperor in the early 90s AD. In any case, if indeed any of these systems of counting Roman kings or emperors is correct, then the name of the kingdom over which any of these emperors reigned was the Roman kingdom. 
So with the words that the eighth kingdom has to come out of the seventh in some undefined way, then we have the theory that is perhaps the most accepted identity of the eighth kingdom in modern Christianity, that the eighth kingdom will be a revived Roman Empire. And so the eighth king will be the Antichrist. And as we've discussed in previous lessons, it is also equally accepted in modern times that the European Union represents at least the beginnings of a revived Roman Empire. Now, let's look at yet another possibility. Because in Old Testament, in the Old Testament, mountains regularly symbolize human kings or kingdoms, governments. And at other times, mountains symbolize strength then it is probably a better approach to stick with the historical and typical use of those terms rather than regard these seven mountains as indicating an actual named location. Now I've heard some commentators say that we need to take into account what the New Testament says about the use of the term mountains such as referring to the Mount of Olives and to that I respond, I just don't agree, because for all Jews of John's day, believers or otherwise, they would have looked to the Holy Scriptures for reference, to understand. And the only Holy Scriptures in existence at that time were what we call the Old Testament. There would be no authorized and canonized New Testament until very early in the 3rd century A.D., so whatever documents written by the Gospel writers or by Paul or by John that were being passed around to the various believing congregations, while certainly they were considered authoritative, they were in no way considered as God-inspired and certainly not on par with the Tanakh, the Old Testament. These were in no way considered God-inspired. The letters were truth, they were important, and they gave direction from the apostles on how to run a believing congregation and on how to understand Yeshua's purpose in ministry, but they were not considered holy, nor were they considered scripture. And they would not be for more than 100 years after John's time. So John would, of course, have looked to Holy Scripture, the Old Testament, for direction and terminology, not to some letters that were out there floating around. Now, if we go to Daniel to understand we, we see that his writings have such great influence on John's apocalypse. So then we can understand when we go to Daniel that seven is the total number of heads of the four beasts that Daniel has in his visions and we must assume a connection to the beast with the harlot on board. And Daniel's four beasts correspond to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that had a head of gold, shoulders of silver, 
torso of bronze, legs of iron. Thus those four beasts in the four parts of the statue represent four kingdoms, with the legs of iron being the fourth. These kingdoms are typically said to start with Babylon, then Armenia, Persia, then the Greek, and finally the Roman. And the feet of, of the statue are said to be a mixture of iron and clay, to some meaning a fifth kingdom will arise out of the fourth, but since clay is weak in structure, then the mixture of clay with iron says that the fifth Roman kingdom will not be as strong as the former Roman kingdom. Now the upshot of this is that some commentators such as Beale say that since the kingdoms of Daniel's beasts and the Nebuchadnezzar statue each span centuries, centuries, then so does the beast of Revelation. That is, the sea beast image of Revelation, which also appears in the Old Testament, signifies different wicked kingdoms over the ages, but none in particular. And even the number seven is not literal, it just means fullness. Now I disagree with this conclusion because then it makes a mockery of the rather intricately laid out vision of Revelation 17.10 that explains how many kingdoms precisely have come and gone, that one is current, another will arise later, and then an eighth will come that has something to do with the seventh. Now none of this sounds very general or indefinite. Do we know then the answer to this riddle of the kingdoms and the kings? I don't believe we do. Otherwise there wouldn't be so darn many different opinions about all this, each with their own fan club. So at this point I'd like to throw out another possibility for the lists of empires and kings including the all-important 7th and 8th. But first I want to set some parameters for you. Why I'm going to even throw this out. See, we must always remember that the Bible is focused where? A location. The Middle East. With Jerusalem at the center. Always. The known world even in New Testament times, did not extend beyond the European, Asian, and African continents. Thus the Lord did not reference other as yet unknown places in the world such as Australia, or North America, or Greenland. So when we read about end times prophecies, do not suppose that any reference to any person or place or event is outside of the Middle East, Asia, Europe, or Africa. When we begin superimposing America into these prophecies, we are chasing ghosts. Next, as we read about the beast with seven heads and ten horns, we are told that the seven heads represent governments, well, kingdoms, empires. But then in verse 9, we're told that the seven heads also represent kings, humans. But does this mean that we, are to, we have to match 
a particular kingdom to a particular king. After all, most of the ancient kingdoms and empires lasted for centuries. They had many kings. So we have to be careful to differentiate between a geopolitical kingdom versus any specific king over that kingdom. And verses 7 through 9 essentially tells us that those seven heads represent both. Now this greatly adds to the complexity of our task of untangling the meaning of this prophecy. Sorry to say. And finally, the beast is said to have seven heads and ten horns, and in Revelation 13 we're told one of the heads received a fatal head wound, but he survived. In other words, had that one died, the other six theoretically would have lived on. This head that was wounded we conclude is the Antichrist. But just as the seven heads are said to represent both kingdoms and kings, so it is that clearly the seven heads of the beast can be seven unique individuals. That is, only one of them is the coming Antichrist and the other six represent other people. However, the seven heads along with the ten horns together form one single beast. And so at times the beast is spoken about as a single unified entity. Other times the focus is on the various parts of the beast, like its seven heads or its ten horns. And so each of those parts represents unique individuals or entities. Confusing? Yes. But you know what? Let's remember something. We are able to do approximately the same thing when we discuss God. We can discuss Him. We can speak of Him in His various parts that are called the Trinity Doctrine that declares we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can speak about each of those parts separately and to a point understand each of their various purposes and functions. And yet, we can also speak of God as a single unified entity. So we need to sort visualize this discussion in Revelation 17 about the beast the same way. He is, in the end, a single unified entity that at the same time is made up of various parts that operate somewhat separately, the seven heads and the ten horns, but yet they are so single-minded in purpose, so single-minded in mission, and they together form all that the Antichrist represents. The difficult part, I believe, of figuring out who these eight kingdoms are that John speaks about is identifying the seventh and the eighth kingdoms. That's the key. The first five 
and then the sixth aren't too tough. The first five, the ones that are fallen, that's assuming that we should be looking for kingdoms and not kings, are the Egyptian kingdom, the Assyrian, then the Babylonian, then the Media Persian, and then the Greek. The sixth kingdom, John says, is the one that exists now in John's era. Well, what, what would kingdom existed in John's time? Rome, the Roman Empire. But what about that seventh one? That seventh one, that one's just to come, would come later after John. The seventh empire is critical to identify because the eighth empire of the end times is going to come from it or be very much like it in some way. So then, who's the seventh? Now one of the keys to understanding the nature of this succession of empires and kings is that each empire that conquered the current one absorbed the one that was conquered. So essentially the bulk of the specific territory that each of these empires had remained the same throughout history. Only after each change of hands the overall size of the empire or kingdom grew because some additional territories were added. So we just have the same territory as each kingdom comes along essentially just being taken away from the previous one. So the question we need to ask is this. Since Rome was the sixth empire, the one that existed during John's lifetime, then who conquered the Roman Empire? Who took it away from them? Who absorbed its territory? Because that would probably identify the seventh kingdom. A sort of two-step process took place. In the third century, the Roman Empire was divided into two because it had grown so large that it became unwieldy to operate. Then later, the western part of the Roman Empire fell, but the eastern part of the Roman Empire continued on. The eastern part was for a while called the Byzantine Empire because its capital was in Byzantium. Today, Byzantium goes by the name of Istanbul, Turkey. Finally, in the mid-1400s, the Eastern Roman Empire lost its grip and it was taken over by the Turks and Islam. This was the beginning of the Ottoman Empire. So as usual, the Ottoman Empire simply absorbed much of what the earlier empire controlled and of course that was primarily the Middle East and then these areas that surround the Mediterranean Sea. But what is of prime importance I think for us to understand is that this was a purely Islamic empire and it lasted 
until the early 1900s. So today when we hear about Muslims claiming territory in Europe and all around the Mediterranean and in the Middle East, see, it stems from their belief that they have the right to reclaim land controlled during the Ottoman Empire. And that includes present-day Israel and especially Jerusalem. So, from my standpoint, from my view, the seventh kingdom or empire is the Ottoman Empire. I readily admit that the statement of verse 10 that this empire or king will remain only a little while is problematic, but I can't decipher how long a little while is. I just don't know. And if the seventh kingdom is the Islamic Ottoman Empire, then it says that we can expect the eighth kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist, to have a certain commonality with that Ottoman Empire. Now when we look at the world around us today, and now that Islam has re-entered the consciousness of the Western world after a long time of us forgetting all about them, we are better able to understand all this talk from Islamic leaders about establishing a worldwide caliphate. That is, Islam wants to establish a one world government, ruled of course by an Islamic theocracy. Now I've spoken to you before that Islam is as much, if not more, a political organization than a religious one. The many wars we see today among nations in the Middle East are wars by and between various factions of Muslims in order to determine which sect of Islam and therefore which leaders of Islam will be the ones to create and rule over this hope for one world Islamic government that they envision. And yet they all agree on one thing. All Jews and Christians must either convert to Islam or die. That they all believe. How does that fit with what we are learning in Revelation about the end times and about the coming Antichrist and about his kingdom? I say it fits hand in glove. I want to caution you that by no means am I stating that this is for certain how it is and absolutely how it's all going to go down in those final days. I'm saying that from the vantage point of 2019 and all the history up to now, this seems to me to be the more likely possibility. Now this is my opinion and it's my speculation. And every day that passes makes the more popularly held belief among Christians that the seventh kingdom and so also the eighth will be a revivified Roman Empire less and less likely. 
And this was a theory, frankly, that was always full of holes anyway. I think this is enough to munch on for today. Next week we'll begin by dealing with the ten, very interesting by the way, the ten horns on the head of the beast.